the dog alone because the dog didn't do a damn thing and now you're trying to feed him your bodily Thou fluid. Thou shalt kill all of your Everybody's had a dog fish a tampon out of the garbage it ain't right to give you but you can pretend like you will a dog. Wow. I don't want to confess. I don't like this one. I usually don't like them because they suck and they're shitty. And they're so and lock your doors and close your blinds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Straight Up Evil. My name is Jocelyn. I'm the brunette. We've got Katie. She's the redhead. Chalo. And we have Carly. She's the blonde. Hiya. It's a Carly case. It's a Carly case. This was a recommendation from one of our listeners, Christina, who has sent in so many good recommendations. And the other one I was thinking about that she recommended was a kid. But after doing Jesse Wilson not too long ago, I just yeah, like you spared us. I couldn't do it. <laughs> well, to thank you or you. So yes. I chose. Okay, I chose this one. Thank you. That's good. Um, but unfortunately, no, not a survivor. We're talking about Michaela McVia. She was a 21 year old woman who went missing after her closing shift at Stewart's convenience store and her body would be found a week later. So a little bit about Michaela, Michaela Jane Rosie McVia. She was born May 21st, 1997 in Missoula, Montana. Her mom, Samantha and her dad, Kevin, who technically was her stepfather, um, not her biological dad, but I don't, I couldn't really see that she had a great relationship with her biological father, but Kevin was essentially her dad raised her and she really wanted to even be adopted by him when he and her mom got married for all she considered him. Yeah. Her Those dad, are her yeah. parents period. Michaela had four siblings. She had two sisters, Kimberly and Tabitha, two brothers, Jared and Kyle. She was especially close with Tabitha. She was the youngest one. She was 18 at the time. And the family also had two dogs. Got to have the dogs in there. Sarah, the German Shepherd. Marley, which I don't know what kind of dog Marley was. And then Michaela herself had a cat named Mr. Perfect, which I just love. That's adorable. I can't. (laughs) So cute. That is. So cute. So they, you know, were in Missoula, Montana for a while. And then around 2003, the family moved to St. Johnsville, New York, which is a small village in upstate New York. It's a little bit west of Cobleskill. Michaela graduated from the Oppenheim Ephrata St. Johnsonville High School, 2016. And after finishing high school at 21 years old, she went to work as a clerk at the local convenience store, Stewart's, which is a huge chain of convenience stores around here. I just love Stewart's. You got to love a good Stewart's. I love Stewart's. There's just no way to describe it. It's I just, love it. It's its own thing. Love it. They have the best ice cream. So while she's working at Stewart's, her mother, Samantha, had actually opened up her own hair salon in town, just a, like a little bit of a walk away from where Stewart's was. And the plan was that Michaela had wanted to follow in her mom's footsteps by attending beauty school. They were, she was going to go and work as a stylist at her mom's salon. They were going to like, you know, basically go into business together. It's so cute. It so is cute. So they were cute. very, very close. But working at Stewart's, I was on West Main Street in St. Johnsville. It was a job that she really enjoyed. Michaela loved like visiting with all the customers. She liked working with her coworkers. She got along with everybody. It was just a pleasant person to be around. And she also really enjoyed being active within the small community of St. Johnsville. Everyone knew her. Everyone knew her family. And she was always like the first to lend a hand to like a neighbor who needed something. She was just like an all around. Unfortunately, the family did get dealt some bad 
at hands on August 31st of 2018, the family suffered a sudden loss when Michaela's older sister, Kimberly, died unexpectedly in her sleep at 24 years old. 24. The cause of death was cardiac arrhythmia, just like in her sleep, like absolutely no, no sign, like just out of nowhere. She was only 24. And just like a little tidbit, she was a forensic medicine major. Come on. I know. I know. So she was a Quinny. She was a Quinny. Unfortunately, she died. And then just 25 days after Kimberly dies is when this all goes down. Okay. Not even a full fucking month later, this poor family has to deal with this next thing. Okay. Yeah. This, I don't, oh, this freaking story is awful. I know. Why? I know. But I you mean, know this what? This is like what we do. It is. I know. Like, like, oh, because we do this. All oh. <laughs> I'm really, I really glad that I picked this one though. And I'm, well, more so I'm really glad that Christina recommended it because it's first of all, semi-local and it's like not covered anywhere. Yeah. Like, I could not there find isn't. There isn't any a lot of podcast episodes, yeah. episodes about it, like at all. It's not talked about enough. A lot of this I got from her mother's book that she wrote. Just so sad to read. It was just an absolutely heart-wrenching heart-wrenching thing to read, but glad that we're covering it. September 24th, 2018, Michaela had a normal day. She had gone to visit her mother at work at the salon. She went to see her and her sister, Tabitha, who was like out of school and they were just hanging out at the salon. Michaela and Tabitha decided to go walk to Stewart's for an iced coffee, which is like something that they always did, and then came back to the salon. And Michaela had brought an ice cream sundae back for her mom that she had made herself like layered with sprinkles and stuff. Yes, just how her mom make likes. your own sundae. I love it. So good. You know, she just, it was just like what 21 year old is going to like go out of their way to think yeah, about making a sweet. sundae for her clearly mom, you know, person. like so cute. She does that. Her and her sister have the iced coffee. And then Michaela goes to actually start her actual shift at Stewart. So she always worked the afternoon to midnight shift. Most of the time the shift went, normally according to coworkers and her manager. And after the shift ended at midnight, Michaela left the store around 12, 10 a.m. to walk the few blocks home, which is what she always did. And unfortunately, this is the last time that she was seen alive. So while she did live with her parents, not far from the Stewarts, her mom, Samantha, said that she always tried to give her like privacy and space. So like in her book that she wrote, she mentions how the night went normally. She assumed that Michaela had gotten home as normal because she heard, I don't know if the dog was barking or something. Something with the door. She thought she just heard Michaela come in, but it ended up not being her, unfortunately. And then the next morning when it was like around noontime, when the time that Michaela would normally wake up and she hadn't emerged from her room yet, Samantha kind of wanted to go check on her, but didn't really want to embarrass her in case Michaela had like company overnight or something. Cause she's, you know, she's 21 years old and she like lived her own thing. But Samantha finally was like, okay, I really... She should be getting up and I haven't heard from her. And it's weird because normally she's up by now. So she finally goes to knock on Michaela's door. There's no answer. She knocks again, no answer. And she kind of cracks the door open just in case. See if anyone's there. There's nothing. No Michaela, no sign of her. I don't know, like the room, she said the room was messy, but that was normal. So she couldn't actually tell if Michaela had slept in her bed or not because she didn't make it all the time anyway. But either way, there really was no actual sign of Michaela around. So she tries to call her. Samantha also contacts Tabitha, the youngest sister, to see if she's heard from Michaela because they're always texting each other. And Tabitha told her, no, I've texted Michaela as well and I haven't heard from her either. So that's weird. This goes on for a little bit longer until finally Samantha's like, this isn't right. I'm going to call the police. One part of this story, the one solitary, positive, somewhat positive part of the story 
is that there is no mention of her just being, oh, she's just a runaway. Maybe she's just out partying like normal, let her do her own thing. And that is solely because of this. That's so rare. Unity. It's so rare. Like that never, yeah. ever happens. It's yeah. always whether, whatever their age, oh, they must've run away. Yeah. They're partying. They're partying. They're yeah. out with a girl. They're out with a boy, whatever. This little town was so small and tight knit that luckily that was just not, not part of the story. So Samantha calls the chief of police of the town who she knows personally. And she's like, this isn't right. Michaela always has come home. I can't get a hold of her. She hasn't come home from her shift last night. I don't think at all. No one can get in touch with her. That's not like her. So the chief of police was not actually on duty at the time, but she told Samantha, okay, go report her as missing. I will call the station ahead to let them know that you're coming in and give them, you know, the lowdown on it. So luckily that goes very smoothly and she's officially reported as missing right away. That's wonderful. Just like the first time I think I've ever said those words in the history of this podcast. Yeah. That does happen. It's few and far between. Yeah. So she's officially reported as missing. And then an extensive search has begun to search for Michaela. At first, they thought maybe that she had walked from work and gone to see her kind of on again and off again boyfriend, a guy named Devin Sargent. But he said he hadn't heard from her, hadn't seen her. They hadn't. It was, I guess, one of their off again times. Either way, he's cleared. Dozens of other leads were followed. There were numerous interviews conducted, searches all around St. Johnsville, and even several items of evidence were located and collected for analysis. And then they go and check the surveillance footage from Stewart's. Hell yeah, that they got the tapes that fast. Yeah. Immediately go look at the surveillance. Immediately. Like, why do we see this be a problem they're all the time? Evidence, they're getting information. Love it. Love it. It's like as if Carly had the evidence this time or something. <laughs> it's like Carly was involved. It's like I was right there. And it's also a plus that it's a small community. And we have dealt with stories where the small town cops don't know the protocol or follow the protocol or do anything. So even more of an A plus in yes. this case. All right. So they look at the surveillance footage from Stewart's and they see on camera, Michaela leave the store at 1210, which we knew from eyewitness accounts as well, because essentially they close up the store and everyone leaves and disperses at the same time after closing up. But like, this is definitive. This is the time she left. Other security cameras were also accessed like ring cameras from nearby houses on her walk. And then you see Michaela speaking with a person in a silver car. Oh, Oh, that's new. She stops. She talks to the person in the silver car and then she gets in. We don't know anything more than that. The family's like, what do you mean? Who is this? We don't know who that is. This is our, this is our community. We know everybody. Who is this person? While they're trying to figure that out, the search is still going. The whole community is nicely bombarding the family with help going to the house, trying to, you know, help the family out in any way they can. The community actually ends up lining all the streets in St. Johnsville with candles and LED lights and lanterns leading the way to Michaela's house, like leaving it, leading her home. Like so sweet. Yeah. So also during the early stages of the search, authorities would find Michaela's cell phone on September 27th, just two days later on Mill Road. And while they look at the cell phone, they find that one of the last numbers dialed on the phone was to a man named Daniel Nellis. And he happened to live right away. Right away. Serious boo. boo. He lived in Oppenheim, which is about Oppenheim. Oppenheim. Either one. Either one. 
This is about 10 minutes away from St. Johnsville. He is a 45 year old man. Just uh, so you know. hang on, hang on. Okay. Hang on, hang okay. On. Hang on. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Age is just a number. Understand. Do you do you? Whatever your relationship is, you do it up. Forty-five <laughs> and twenty-one. Yes. Okay. okay. Just want to make sure we have that clear. Okay. Yeah, that's a large. That's a large. It's a large gap. one. It's a gap. Yep. It is a gap. It um, is a gap. It is a gap. And also, love tattoos. I would love to be covered in tattoos myself. He was also covered in tattoos, which is totally fine. However, when you find out a little bit more about him, it just like added to the vibe where the community was like, no, dude, no, thank Mm -hmm. you. So law enforcement, they speak with him because obviously he's the last number on this missing girl's cell phone that they find randomly on a rural road. Okay, let's talk to this guy, 45 years old. He says, okay, this is one of the things that he says, and it will change repeatedly over and over different things, which we'll talk about more later. But at first he says, oh, you know, I think I, I think I did know this girl. I, I, you know, I go to Stewart's once in a while, but I haven't seen her in like a few weeks. I have no idea why she would have my number. Okay, bud. You should might as well just say my first statement I would like to make is I'm suspicious. I'm a <laughs> suspicious fucking person. Seriously. Like, do you think like, the police what? are that like, do you think that, that law dumb? enforcement is that dumb that they're going to be like, oh, wow. Well, I guess the phone number fairy came down and just yeah. gave you gave her your number. And I don't know the exact time that that phone call was made, but I got to think it's got to be late, early, more, you know, like not yeah. 3 p.m. No, we'll come to find out. Shocker. Daniel Nellis was a bad fucking dude. Tattoos or not, he had a lengthy criminal record from childhood, okay? Arrests related to drugs, alcohol, burglary. He was previously involved with a local outlaw motorcycle gang. That's great. How is there a local outlaw motorcycle gang in St. John's? Well, I'm not sure. Sons of anarchy shit over here. Sons of anarchy, the Mayans are abound, okay? He somehow (laughs) involved in the motorcycle gang and he also had a prior felony conviction. So like, he's not great. No stranger to the law. No stranger to the law. You would think you would know how to talk to cops, but you would think he could come up with Mm. anything of a better story, but no. Anyway, they do somehow eventually get a quick search warrant to search his house. And guess what they find there, Quinnies? Oh, just an extensive collection of firearms. Extensive collection. More than 10 just in the house. So then he's taken into custody because he's not allowed to have any guns whatsoever. Because he's a felon. Because he's a felon. Yeah. So he has just like. Idiot. 10, 20 firearms hanging around, which apparently weren't in his name. They were in this other guy's name. Who Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you can't just be in your house surrounded with weapons. Surrounded by ammunition. Like all the things. Okay. So they take him in. In the meantime, a few days later, October 2nd, just about a week after Michaela goes missing. Michaela's body was found in heavy brush by a property owner on Kringsbrush Road in Oppenheim. Again, like these poor people just like going, walking on their property or like driving, you know what I mean? And just like happening upon that. that. Yeah. It's awful. 
It is. So they hold a press conference about this and it's not said in that press conference by the state police, what state the body was found in or what clothes Michaela was wearing, but we will find this out later in the trial. Either way, her body is sent for an autopsy. Mind you, like the family has been told, the family can't even see her body or come in contact with it yet because they need to do the autopsy and collect all the evidence. So like, it's just it's just so terrible. Reading the book that her mom wrote, like I knew these, I knew these things, but I don't always think of them in this like sequential order. Yes. Can't see her yet. They no. know what's happened in some in, respect. In and order they can't to even identify her. her. They want to, they want they, to see her. It's like, yeah. it's, it's closure for the parents. Of course. There may yeah. be a photo that they use or something from the crime scene, or maybe she had something on her that was indicative and they could say, is this her license or whatever it is. Exactly. Um, but no, they're not going to be able to, to physically see her, which is just so sad. Later on, I'm jumping a little bit of a head, but later on when they are able to see her and they're getting the body ready for funeral and the wake and all that. The funeral director very nicely tells the family, like, you can touch her, but try not to touch her head. The autopsy is done by Dr. Michael Sakirica, and it's later revealed that the manner of death was, in fact, a homicide. Michaela had been shot in the head once by a 38 caliber handgun sometime between September 25th, when she went missing, and September 30th. In the meantime, they don't know exactly when her body was dumped, but it was definitely out in the elements for a while due to the state of decomposition and all that stuff. So obviously now it's a homicide investigation. They're searching more surveillance footage. Love to hear it. And as we said, Michaela was seen on the footage leaving Stewart's from 1210. Then the security cameras close to Michaela's home showed her get in that silver car that we mentioned earlier. And guess who owned that fucking car? Oh, just the local motorcycle gang member, Daniel Nellis. Shocker. So then they find that out. They decide to get surveillance footage from Daniel's house. It shows both Daniel and Michaela entering his home at 12.45 a.m. September 25th. Oh, officers, I have no idea why her phone would have called my phone. I haven't seen her. I only know her from stewards. What? Then they see them both leave his home on on the cameras around noon the next day. But yet, don't forget, Michaela has not contacted her family at any point. Right. That's what I was just going to say. Time. Already, I feel like there's something not, not right correct. about it's that. not right. Yes. Exactly. I don't even think uh, what we don't even have any reason to believe that she had access to her phone. Exactly. You know, like exactly. it's just, she's just not the type to not say, hey, not mom, I'll be home. home and t- yeah. Like, right. exactly. So already I'm getting like really vibes. bad. Exactly. Yeah. Very totally. Bad. Very bad. Yeah. Police also tried looking for some more CCTV cameras on the way to the area where Michaela's body was eventually found. And a residential properties camera captured that silver vehicle driving by around 1220 p.m. on like September it. 25th. And then going back the same way that they came just shortly minutes. after. Yeah. Okay. That is just. So you're telling me. Michaela is seen leaving Stewart's, talking to the person and getting into the car. 1210 a.m. Okay. 1245, half an hour or so later, she is seen going into his home. Then she's in the home for whatever. They both are leaving his house around noon. Then his fucking car and him driving it is caught on camera, driving near where her body was literally dumped in the brush around 1220 that next day and then just piecing out a few minutes later. He lives not 10 minutes from there. 
Yeah. And also, I know that you aren't going to think that there's going to be cameras everywhere, but like, it's also a day and age where like, you have to realize you're going to be fucking seen. Like you are going to get caught. It's like people blow my mind. Straight denying that you were ever with her. Yeah. It's never going to work out. It's like the arrogance. I don't want them to be smarter, but like, it's also shocking to me that they think that they can really get away with this shit. All right. So this footage, the timeline is going this way. Awesome that the police are even finding all of this out. What's more is that this timeline is also coincides with a Fitbit or a heart rate tracker that Michaela had on her body. Okay. was found when her body was found. They look at that heart rate tracker. Her heart rate goes up around 1224 PM, September 25th. Yeah, before this is really sad. This is crazy sad. Before stopping completely six minutes later. And they believe they fully believe like that is the moment when she died. What? I have a complicated relationship with my Apple Watch. Uh, <laughs> it bothers me. It fe- I feel like it's a Why? constant. Well, I just too I'm much the, access. I'm like not the too... type of person to be on my phone all of the time. Yeah. And every time anything happens, it gives you a little like it's not a vibration. It's like almost like a little nudge on mm. your wrist. Mm-hmm. And that drives me nuts, like, because I just don't want to pick up my phone all the time. And you can turn that off. So that's not really the watch's fault. But also you look at it and it tells you, like, how much exercise you got that day, how many times you stood that day, what's your average heart rate. It like mo- And it does, it like motivates you to do stuff. But it's but also, also a double-edged obsessive. sword. Yes, because yeah. then you're like, oh, well, I didn't yeah. get to my goal today. So it's 830 and I'm just going to walk up the stairs five or six times, which is not... <laughs> Right. bad, but it's right. still like something you wouldn't do, you know? Yeah. And so I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. Sometimes I just put my regular watch on just like switch it out. If I'm feeling like, okay, you're being a little extra for me, but this technology having Amazing. the ability to pinpoint her heart speeding up and slowing down and yeah. stopping. It's wild. This is just what a time. What, what yeah. a, like, it's just amazing. Like you it can't, is. you can't deny that man. You can't, there's absolutely no denying. Yeah. What, like other, one, what other reason totally can accurate. you set? You know, if yeah. everybody stops. Yeah. Right. Like if everyone was wearing one of those, it wouldn't be like time of death, 3 PM to 6 PM. It would be right. like, no time of death, this five minute window. Exactly. You know? yes. Like exactly. Totally. And also again, it's adding to how stupid he is. Because yes. he got rid of her phone, not realizing she's got her watch on. She's got her watch on and left it on her body. Like, thank Stupid. you for doing that, sir. Thank you. But you're an idiot. For once, even though it's a terrible ending and a terrible story that we're talking about, there are unexpected, not good parts, but surprising that the cops are doing a good job. And it's surprising yeah, throughout. that we can get this information. Apart from the surveillance footage, apart from the heart rate tracker, there was more cell phone evidence placing Daniel and Michaela together before her phone stopped moving at the location where it was eventually found on Mill Road. It places Daniel Nellis in the area where the body was located in correspondence with his car being on the camera. All of this is coming together and then they find DNA. His DNA, it is a match being found under Michaela's fingernails on her body and on her clothes. Good for her for getting it under her fingernails. Yes. There was, however, one question. There was some unmatched DNA in her underwear that was not suitable for comparison. However, that doesn't mean it wasn't his. Right. 
It just means that there wasn't enough or they couldn't get a sample. They couldn't get a sample. Yep. When they brought in him to jail for the guns and are subsequently questioning him about Michaela and all this stuff, they notice that there are scratches on his arm. Guess what his little cute story for that was, Queenies? Oh, I was just fixing up my old motorcycle. And it reached out and scratched me. Like, what the fuck? What do you mean? It reached out with its four or five fingers and scratched. <laughs> okay. Like, Daniel Nellis is already in the county jail when Michaela's body's found, like we said. He had been arrested on September 30th on the weapons charges. They find that was, you know, more than 10 illegally owned handguns in his home. And then they're asking him about Michaela, obviously. And on November 15th, just a little like a month later, he was indicted and arraigned with charges of second degree murder for the case of Michaela McVia and first degree criminal possession of a weapon and two counts of third degree criminal possession of a weapon. He pleaded not guilty to all charges, of course, and was held without bail in the Fulton County Jail. Trial comes. Judge Polly Hoy. Don't know her, but I love her. Just going to throw that right out. Again, rare for me to love a judge, but I feel like I can vibe with her. She presides over his trial in June of 2019. The Times Union reported that Daniel Nellis at trial. Cringe, cringe. He was crying to the judge. He called his conviction a, quote, lynching. Okay? Oh my God. Okay? That's the word. That's the exact word that he used. And then he goes on to cry and say that a lack of DNA evidence should have absolved him from the case. I have seen this. Oh. I've seen this in defendants, especially to female judges. Exactly. Try to exactly. appeal to their sympathies mm-hmm. and cry and make a big emotional display. And it like never works. They're really there because they have a job to do. They're not there to like hold you to their breast and like comfort <laughs> you. You know what I mean? Like they're really, it's, it's and specifically oh. male defendants, female judges. Yes. And my favorite thing in the world is probably when people represent themselves, but maybe my second favorite (laughs) is when a female judge presides over a case like this because they just, they don't so often, they don't, they're not having it. I love it. Anyway, he says that the lack of DNA evidence should have absolved him. In the meantime, he, he is, he does testify in his own case. And it doesn't help him one bit because his story keeps changing. Remember, he had first told investigators. What I had said before was he had first told investigators. He knew Michaela from passing at Stewart's, hadn't seen her in a few weeks, had no idea why she would call his phone. Well, now he's it. Yeah. Now he changes it and says, actually, I only knew about it that you would come to talk to me about her case because, quote, I only knew about the missing girl because my sister had called me and told me that the police were at her house. And they asked if she knew Michaela. And then they came and asked me if I knew Michaela. And I was like, I don't know her. But then, oh, actually, I do know her from Stewart's. And I'd seen her like three weeks ago. Yep. Nope. That's your, this is too, that's too like, much. What? Nope. On the stand, he's asked if he can explain why Michaela tried to call him. Like apparently she would try to call him just after midnight on September 25th. He says he has no idea why she would call him or how she would even have his number. Then he goes on to testify that no, he was not the person who killed Michaela, but he does say, actually, I was driving Michaela home oh my God. from my house, but then she got upset. And she just got out of the car and I never saw her again. Mm-hmm. This is classic. What? This is so classic. It she really is. Like, this she is got like, out of the car and uh, she, was she died by someone. And then she died. Exactly. Yeah. We got in the <laughs> argument and she left her purse at home. Like, And then off. I just didn't see her again after that. 
And then I just don't know. And I can't decide whether he is changing his story because A, he's just a bad liar, can't keep his story straight, or he's just a straight up idiot. Or is this like him being narcissistic and like trying to confuse everybody and just like spouting out the mouth to see like what he can confuse people to believe. And then it all comes out to be fine. I think once he, once his story changed once, he was just like, well, now I'll say, I guess I'll just say whatever I'm going to say in any moment because I'll feel it out and I'll know what to say in front of what people. Then he goes on to say he also definitely couldn't have killed her because he was fully disabled due to a muscle disease that he has had and been diagnosed with since he was 13 years old. And then this has caused him to have 13 corrective surgeries. And due to this disease, he is physically unable to run. But she was shot. Right. What does that have exactly. to do with anything? Literally. How about you just shut your fucking <laughs> mouth? Okay. Like, Jesus. What does that have to do with fucking anything? Totally Seriously. irrelevant. Nothing to do no with anything. No one said about anything about running, dude. Again, he's on the stand. He is asked by his own attorney, did you kill Michaela? And he says, no, I would never hurt her. So then the DA, Chad Brown, is questioning him. And he goes, well, what did Michaela do to you that made you shoot her in the back of the head? And Nellis fires back. I showed her nothing but compassion. And she made love with me. Oh, oh, come on. We did not ask. We did not ask. Pukes giving. Pukes giving. So then crime scene investigator Aaron Manns also testifies. She was at the scene in Kring- on Kringsbush Road when Michaela's body was found. She had testified that she actually photographed the whole area of that power line road and she photographed Michaela's body specifically. I always thought that that would be such a really cool job. Amazing job. Totally. Except for looking at the dead party. Of course, except for all the blood. Right. Of course. But I just can't help but think of the show Bones because I just love that fucking show. And just like thinking about Angela on that show. And like, this is who I'm picturing. So anyway, she takes the photos of the area of the road and of Michaela's body. And those photographs are shown at trial. And it shows that Michaela was found on her left side. She is face down in the dirt with her legs bent at her knees and her pants are pulled down to her ankles. So the medical examiner, Dr. Michael Sekirika, who had done the autopsy, testified as well that while performing the autopsy and he examined her skull and her scalp, he is then, obviously he determined that she was fired um, at close, the shot was fired at close range and approximately a couple of inches from her head. So she was executed. Absolutely execution style. Yeah, so, totally. Daniel Nellis, I don't know if you know this, but you don't have to run in order to do No that. running involved. You could have no legs. He also testified that there was no evidence of any disease or any other injury that could have caused her death. Like it is 1000% execution style homicide. He also testifies that Michaela's body was twisted and her head was face down. Like we saw in the, like they saw in the photo. And he said that there were signs of mild decomposition, which meant she had been dead for several days to approximately a week before her body was found, which goes along with the timeline. The timeline, right. From her Fitbit, from her Fitbit. Dr. Sekirika also testified that he completed a sexual assault kit on Michaela, obviously due to the circumstances of her being found, the way her pants were around her ankles, Daniel Nellis and his whole self, of course. However, during cross-examination, the defense attorney, Brian Toll, questioned whether that there was any indication of any sexual assault. And Dr. Sekirika basically said that 
The kit itself showed no evidence of Michaela being sexually assaulted, but there's really, you can't determine fully that there was none. I'm telling you. So it's like that. We always have to remember this. It's just. But that's just a straight up determination that they make. And it doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. Exactly. Right. Right. He did say, however, that there was a bruise on her neck and an abrasion on the midline of her neck, which doesn't look good. Obviously, it's some sort of struggle and some sort of violent harassment. He also testifies that actually there wasn't a lack of DNA. There was DNA all over her pants, all over her sweatshirt. Jesus. The swabs from the sexual evidence collection kit does actually find his DNA somewhere around there. Not the underwear per se, but during the swabs from the sexual assault evidence kit, his Daniel Nellis's DNA is found. And on a pair of glasses that were found near Michaela's body on the road. Like there's no fucking question. The yeah, DNA he was, is all he was there. there. Also taking the stand were the state police investigators, Sean Ryan and Brian Kenny, and they both testified that they had conducted searches at Daniel Nellis's residence at the location where Michaela's body was found and another location, 53 Dolge Avenue, which is another somewhat residence of Daniel Nellis, or he spent a lot of time there. Again, they're testifying that that's when like the dozen of handguns were found that Nellis allegedly had access to, but legally was not supposed to be around. While they were searching the upstairs residence on Dolge Avenue, along with several handguns they found were also explosives, ammunition, and material for making new ammunition. So he's just hanging out with multiple fucking explosives. (laughs) His wang out? Like, what the fuck? Bad news, though. If you set off an explosive, you have to run away. You have to run. <laughs> or else you're going to blow yourself up, man. <laughs> Go in your house and you actually, blow your own self up. You do have to run away from an explosive. So probably shouldn't keep those. I cannot. Oh, my God. Idiot. <laughs> hanging out with his wang out with his oh bombs. God. Yeah. Hanging so, out with um, his explosives all, out. Like, imagine the state of whatever quote unquote residence this dude is hanging out. Yeah, this guy's a fucking mess. To top it all off, the investigators, Kenny and Ryan, both testified that the front door of that residence was boarded up with plywood and and had bullet holes just strewn. Jesus (laughs) Christ. Like, what the fuck? There were also bullet holes found throughout the home, including the master bedroom and on the stairway. Yeah, like he's got anger. They found approximately 10 to 12 bullet holes in that residence dude guys just waking up and like shooting shit like good morning (laughs) bang drink my coffee bang fucking pissed off bang shooting shit everywhere like what the fuck dude Forgot Take my keys. Some more Shoot steroids. through the door. Like, bang. Come on. I need a fucking coffee from Stewart's. Bang. Bang. Like, <laughs> what? Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still in the trial. They're showing the video footage that shows Nellis and Michaela together. The four videos in total played for the jury show them going into Nellis's home. I'm sorry. They first show the silver car pulling up or getting in, going into his home. Um, and then while she is exiting the vehicle and entering Nellis's house, Michaela is seen holding a very distinct and colorful purse. 
which would never be found again. However, there's a second video that shows approximately 7.22 a.m. on September 25th, a Fulton County Sheriff's deputy at the residence after Nellis calls 911 multiple times, claiming that the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang were at his house. Bang! (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I just can't. What are you even saying? (laughs) Anything that you have said... This whole time. It's just outrageous. What the yeah. fuck? Living your best outlaw life. Like, what? God. Okay. He's 45. I can't. 45 years old. Okay. Yeah. Then a third video, 11.59 a.m. shows both Nellis and Michaela leaving the residence that same day. And then the final video showing Nellis returning to his residence at 12.59 p.m. alone. This is after the video of a different footage of him being at the road where her body was found. They searched Nellis's property. They find some items that were just inexplicably burned to a crisp. Wow. Guess what those items were? Um, oh, I don't know. Items completely consistent with any of the items that would have been in Michaela's purse, according to her family and friends, including a cell phone charger that matched her cell phone that they found on Mill Road. He kept our fucking charger? Okay. What a asshole what? like seriously what he went you know he went through that bag and was like oh i'll take this exactly. take this yeah. take your money yeah, he probably like, shot it all too. where's the purse <laughs> also like, and then burned it uh, yeah. with the bullet holes and the plywood on the fucking door and the guns Dude. and the explode did he explode yeah did he blow them up probably no, uh, carly you have to run <laughs> he can't he has them he just he can't, can't run. Run. run from a fire too like he burned the <laughs> items like i don't know Nellis's defense attorney has a, an explanation for all of this okay oh gosh wait. i can't wait to hear it i love it wait, wait i love it hear this one he says Daniel Nellis did not like the police and the police did not like him. And you know what else? Oh, you know what else? My client has not quote been an angel. He hasn't been an angel, but he has been a hell's angel. I don't know. I think he is in a rival. gang Because he called the police against him. Correct. Right. It okay. seems like correct, he's correct. trying to get them in trouble like a lot. Like, mm. What is your They're life? at my house. Okay. Right. You know? I'm sorry. I'm not a fucking lawyer. I'm not a defense attorney. But the best you could come up with is that, oh, well, he doesn't like the police and the police don't like him. Must I mean, be. this is a tough case. <laughs> he has said a lot of things that you're just he like, has said man. a lot. He has said a lot. Yeah. He just runs his mouth. The jury would take two and a half days to deliberate. It's a long time. So that's a pretty long time, to be honest with you. They would find Daniel Nellis guilty of second degree murder and first degree criminal possession of a weapon in June of 2019. So glad. In true Nellis fashion. Okay. The trial was dramatic. The sentencing was also wild and dramatic. Standing next to his attorney, Nellis is fully sobbing. And this is when he continues with his lengthy speech to the judge, Polly Hoy, insisting he's totally innocent. And he has in fact been a victim of the justice system. He said, he said, He would never take a gun and shoot someone, let alone a girl I was trying to date. I just shoot up my own house. I just just shoot shoot holes in my my walls, my doors, my everything. Also. And you guys find a girl with a gunshot to the back of her head execution style, but it wasn't me. Wasn't me. And you're trying to date her. But but when she made love with you, according to you, (laughs) but then also according to you, you didn't know her. Right. You said you didn't know her. And that's before mm-hmm. anyone even knew that she was dead. Exactly. So 
Judge Hoy, she's like, nah, dude, quote, you are a callous individual. The only time that you have shed tears is feeling sorry for yourself. Exactly right. Here, here. Exactly right. He goes on to ask the judge for leniency, again, stating that the DNA evidence suggested that others could be culpable. Do you mean the DNA found all over her and under her fingernails? Interesting. Judge Hoy, completely not a fucking habit. It. She says, quote, you decided to suddenly, violently, end the life of a 21-year-old girl by taking her to a remote area, shooting her execution style in the back of the head at close range, discarding her in the brush in another effort to cover your tracks, and leaving her like a piece of garbage. Then you went for a cup of coffee. She says, I hope you feel guilt and shame for what you have done every day of your life. Daniel Nellos was then sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder and an additional 15 years for the weapons charge. Prison records indicate that he remains incarcerated at Five Points Correctional Facility in Romulus, New York, and he will be eligible for parole in August of 2056. Really quick aftermath, after Michaela's murder and the trial, Michaela's parents, Samantha and Kevin, went to live with Michaela's aunt, Cora Murray, out of state. Literally, they just could not be there. Totally anymore. makes sense. Couldn't take it. She no, closes up the salon. She couldn't be there anymore because Michaela wasn't going to be there with her. In the book, she says, like, it was nothing against all the people who rallied for them and, like, came no, in you know, for the no, community. She just, just the, couldn't the do it. Couldn't yeah. do it. It's too painful. Yeah. Samantha says, with everything that happened, my husband and I lost everything, our home, my business. She says, while the people of St. Johnsonville have been very supportive, business dropped and I just couldn't be there anymore. She says, I opened my business because Michaela was going to get into cosmetology and I wanted her to be able to work with me. Don't forget, they also had just one month prior lost their other daughter. About Michaela, Samantha says, quote, she was such a good person. She would give the shirt off of her back. She was the first person to help and she was the first person to make someone laugh. Her dad, Kevin said, Michaela wouldn't want us to give up. Kimberly wouldn't want us to give up. So you just have to move forward. And that, Gwynnies, is the story of Michaela McVia. Wow. What a story. So yeah. sad. So it's incredibly so sad. sad. No reason for it. None. And that was another question in the trial. Like, what's the motive? And yeah, they where's the motive? They basically yeah. said, like, he just is fucking evil. Like, he just yeah. Yeah, he's a did it because yeah. he's just a fucking bastard and always has been. He just Literally. took advantage and, and did that Period. for whatever reason. He's obsessed with guns, obviously. Exactly. Completely. And this is just a really good, this case is just a really prime example of we always try to talk about the victims on the show and like who they were and really tell their story but when it comes to murders like if you take somebody's life you're seeing their her parents lose their house lose their business lose their entire network of people the victims are not just the person who passes you know it's it's just the and who suffers right exactly it's just it's so huge that one thing that you did i think her co-workers who have yep. her shift or her manager like, you know that's oh. why you go away for life dude that's why you exactly. get 40 years because you exactly. what you've done is heinous to this poor girl this complete this girl who completely did not deserve anything that happened to her but on top of that her family, it negatively impacted a bunch of people yes. yeah it's just like, honestly the whole community was affected yeah for yeah. sure the whole community was like we laughed a lot because you have to fucking He's a comical person because he's such a fucking this is like a but, Lisa McVeigh level story. Yes, it is. Like it is. he, we Michaela, have to laugh because it's horrible. It's so horrible. But Michaela did fight. Like, unfortunately, she lost her life, but she fucking fought for it. Yeah, she tried. 
I wonder if she ever said anything to her sisters or to her friends or anybody about him. According to the mom's book, they knew nothing Nothing. about him. He's not the type that you're going to tell your parents about. I mean, I get that. But I mean, like friends or whatever. If he's like coming in the restaurant, exactly. And like talking to you and maybe saying things to you and stuff. Exactly. You're not going to be putting that. You're not, you don't want your mom. You're not going to want mom to worry. Fine. About and you. that's very true. And I completely agree. And moms are never going to know everything that goes on with their teens or their adult children. Moms are going to worry no matter They're what. They're going to worry no matter what. But I will say from what I could tell from the book, especially they were extremely close. And Michaela mm-hmm. did seem to tell her mom pretty much everything. And if it wasn't her mom, it was Tabitha. Who right. knew all the tea, all the things, like all about her on and again, off again, boyfriend. She had like a miscarriage pregnancy scare situation. And like, they knew all about that stuff in the family. Right. So Very close. for right. nobody to know anything about this dude. Yeah. It's he, weird. Nothing, right. It was no, at least there was no like real history there. You know what I right. mean? Like maybe it was on a whim that one day. He probably came into that Stewart's. Said, call me when you get out of work. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Maybe I I'll be around. Think, you yeah, know? I don't exactly. even think he fucking knew her very well at no, all. No, 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 not at all. Well, thanks, Christina, for that. I'm glad at least we get her story out there. Bang. Good morning. Bang. <laughs> Bang. Cereal. Bang. <laughs> Listen to Straight Up Evil.